Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. Well, we're going to uh, dedicate today's talk to the topic of taking care of yourself if you are a caregiver. We know that caregiving can be um, extremely difficult um, and isolating for that matter, especially in times like these. So we thought we would bring in um, an expert, no other than Dale Atkins, who is a psychologist and an author um, of a book entitled The Kindness Advantage. Dale, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Deborah. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm so looking forward to our conversation. So let's just let's start with COVID because we hope we're seeing the end of COVID with the end of 2020. We can move forward. Um, but honestly, I've I've heard so many people, not only people diagnosed with dementia, but people who are looking after their loved ones saying that the isolation of COVID has been very difficult. It has been, and it's been one of the major contributors to the stress. Um, in families where there are uh, people who have dementia and Alzheimer's because so much of their routine that they may have worked so hard to put together and the opportunity to have other people engage and have stimulation, to be able to walk in a mall freely if it's cold or to go outdoors and greet people at a store, all of these things have been stopped and in addition to the isolation and what feeds that isolation is this constant fear somewhere in the back of our minds and, and anxiety and worry about our loved one's health and our health. Because so many people who are taking care of someone who has Alzheimer's or some related dementia are elderly and are in that more vulnerable group. And as you say, and I'm so glad you did, that you know, as we come to the end of 2020, which in itself is a blessing, and look towards 2021, you know, we do have hope given the vaccine. We do have hope that there's a realistic opportunity that we can meet with our loved ones, that we can regain a different kind of schedule and have even just to have an aide come in or to have someone, a relative, a grandchild come in and read to a, grand, a grandmother. These are the kinds of things that were cut off and they were cut off immediately and they were cut off with fear. So that it's not just isolation, it's isolation with fear and anxiety and concern. Yeah, and, and Sorry, yeah. I need to interrupt, but one of the comments that we um, are getting quite frequently lately is this anxiety over what if I get sick? What yes. happens to my loved one? I mean, it's a big responsibility, caregiving, and you know, your health is is so important in in the, the whole equation of caregiving. It is the premier, and it is the most important element because the caregiver um, has what I refer to as their own reservoir. And so often as caregivers, our reservoir becomes depleted and we, we are doing so much for this other person and for the other responsibilities that we have in our families. And because few people are just doing caregiving for one person, even if they're sharing it, like if parents are caregiving for a child who is an adult child who maybe got early onset, because we see this happening in, in more families, then they are taking care of each other. Or if they're taking like a sandwich generation, which I always talk about, you know, the club sandwich generation, um, because you can be taking care of three, three generations and you may be the primary or the secondary caregiver, 
but you've got to fill your own reservoir. And one of the reasons I'm so glad that we're talking about this is how do you fill the reservoir with drops at a time? And when you have that worry, you have to pay attention to what can I do right now? Am I okay at this moment? And what is feeding it? And the care of yourself comes down to some very basic things, which has to do with, my first question is, when were you last at a doctor and what do you, how are you really doing? And are you able to take hairs in a dietary way? So what is your nutrition? We're always very concerned about the nutrition for the person we're caring for, but are we being conscious of what we need? What about our sleep? What about our exercise? And what about the way we take care of our spiritual being? Are we praying? Are we meditating? Are we reading um, you know, beautiful poetry? Are we revisiting some novels that we may have seen, may have loved when we were children? Um, and are we listening to them on, you know, on audio tape? Are we are we taking walks in nature? Are we able to get a neighbor to come in to sit with our loved one for a while and listen to music, or to play a game, or to perhaps plant a plant in a pot while we take a ten minute break or a fifteen minute break? So, so these kinds of things that I think we need to explore to be sure that we are taking care of ourselves. And the other piece is being able to control what goes on in our mind and our internal conversation. So, so I want to I, I go to that, but I want to talk a little bit um, about, you know, that's a lovely list of things that you've shared with us and to be mindful of, of being able to do these things. But the, the complaint that we hear all the time is, I don't have the time. Like, how can I possibly have the time to do all this? And, you know, I, I get it. Like, I run every day. If I don't run, I'm a basket case, right? If I was in a, I, you know, I'm not looking after my mom physically. We're not in the same home. But if I were, I might not be able to sneak out for that one hour to go for a run. So yes. what you're saying is, you first and foremost, we need to change the environment and the structure we live in so we get help. Is that right? Yes, and during COVID, it's been particularly difficult because in, during COVID, it's not so easy to get help. And it, in fact, it can be very dangerous to get help. So what kind of help are we getting? And I think one of the things that we can do, depending on how really what's going on with the person you're caring for, is just as you and I are talking now using the screen, I mean, that can be where help comes, not only for an online support group, but also for those moments that you're describing. If you can go to another part of the house and if, if your loved one is not able to use a screen, I mean, I will share with you something that occurred with my father and it's not unusual. He was going through a period where anything that had a screen was really dangerous and it was very frightening. And when he was ill, it was many years ago, there, we didn't have all these computers, but anytime you had a mirror or a television screen, um, we had to cover everything with blankets and shades so that um, he would not see something in a reflection and think that someone was coming after him. So we had to make adaptations in that way. But I think what you can do is to have a granddaughter read um, you know, on screen, or you can have someone, as I said, a neighbor whom you trust as far as COVID uh, come in and maybe they're, maybe they're cooking something and you're the person that you are taking care of is in the room or they're singing. I remember that uh, I worked with a family and the neighbor would come in, she had a beautiful voice and the family had a piano and she came in and she had a mask 
And every Tuesday at one o'clock, she came in and she played piano. And the husband, who was not well, was sitting on the bench and just enjoy the piano bench and just really enjoying that time. It became part of their routine. And during that time, the wife was going, would go out and just do whatever she would do. She would take a walk, she would meet a friend and she would just, with her mask, and she would just go out and get some air. Then they had someone else come in with a dog and because they didn't have a dog. So the dog visit was another part of the day. So when you say, I don't have time, it's absolutely true. But how do you create a schedule where you create time for yourself. The first thing is to say, it's really important. Do I deserve it? Why do I deserve it? And even if you don't think you deserve it, you say, I do deserve it. And I, I invite the listeners and your community to, again, they're not gonna have much time, but to understand that there is, there is a great science behind the need for self-compassion and self-care. And this science, has taught us through functional MRI images that not only do our brains change, but our attitude changes when we do even small acts of kindness for ourselves, because we are doing tremendous acts of kindness for the people that we care for, even though the voice in our head may say that's not good enough, or you have to don't lose your temper, or you've got to monitor, or oh no, I'm losing it again. And that voice can be very loud and it can be very punishing and it can be very hurtful, not only to ourselves, but to the kind of energy that we're creating in the space with our loved one. So practicing every day for one minute to take a breath and to center yourself and to just feel yourself in your body and to quiet yourself for one minute can lead to, and you do this maybe three, four times a day, can lead to a refuge within so you say, okay, let me just get my breath. You know, my grandmother used to say count to 10. It's a variation on the theme. And maybe you have a particular prayer or maybe you have a particular mantra or maybe you have a particular person who was influential in your life who says, you can do this. I've got your back. That person may be dead for years and years, but you create a support system within yourself. I love um, what you said because also you're allowing room for forgiveness, right? I mean, I know, you know, I've I've gotten upset with my mom and lost my temper because maybe she asked me things one too many times and I was in a bad mood or, you know, I find driving with her particularly disturbing because she thinks that we're going to get in an accident every second. Yeah. She's always screaming in the car and, you know, yeah. I lose my temper. Yeah. And then I feel really badly. I feel terrible that like, how could I treat her that way? Like, that, what was I thinking? But it was just a human reaction. If somebody pesters you constantly about something that's not happening, you're going to get upset, right? But I love what you're saying because you're saying to your, you're, you're reminding us we have to forgive ourselves because on, this is not an easy journey. It's not at all, no matter which way you slice it. And so we're only human, right? And to say it's okay. If you make a mistake, it's okay. I think that's really important. I echo what you're saying. And I would just take out the word only. We are human. We are human. We are not saints. And every single person who was on this journey did not say, oh, that's a trip I really want to take. Let me get my ticket. Let me, let me get all the clothes I need to get on that journey. This is so not that journey that people want. 
And the and so how do we accommodate? How do we change our attitude? How do we enter this space? Many years ago, I referred to it as falling down the rabbit hole because I remember a particular incident where my dad was ensured that everybody was after him. And he said, they're here, they're here. And I said, no, daddy, nobody's here. It's really okay. And then I finally changed my tune with, by the way, the help of Dr. Ol um, Oliver Sachs, whom I heard in a totally different environment. And with all my training in special ed and all my training in psychology, I kind of forgot that I was supposed to go down the rabbit hole. I was supposed to go to where my dad was. And that's the point that allows us to be free and to say, yes, dad, there is someone here and I'm going to get him. Don't worry, you're gonna be okay. And for that then moment, the following moment, I said, oh, thank you, thank you. Until two minutes later or two seconds later, he said it again, but it became a routine. You know, Deborah, one of the things that I often share with, with families that I see is this idea there are actually a couple was, you know, I happen to love Broadway and I love theater. And every time I go to a show, it's the first time, it, you know, it's like opening night for me because I've never been there before. But what about those actors? They're doing the same thing again and again and again, but they make it seem fresh. They are in that present moment. Every time we hear for the 25th time, where are you going? Or where are we? Or what are you doing? It's opening night. It's for, the, for our loved one, it's the first time. So we have to keep coming back to that present moment and say, yes. And not only say, yes, I told you, but yes, and here we are. Yes, and we're going, you know, we're gonna go have lunch now, or yes. So how do you do it? By allowing yourself to be human, by forgiving yourself when you lose your temper, and by also acknowledging it, say, I'm really sorry. I was just at the edge of my rope, Dad. Let's try again. Because whether or not your loved one is able to process what you said, you've said it. And you feel better by just acknowledging that we all make, as you said, mistakes. But these are just human encounters that are very difficult to take. But when we strengthen ourselves, when we fill ourselves, when we listen to the music that we want, like if let's say we're doing something, it's okay to put these earbuds in and listen to your favorite music. We're always talking about, and I love that you did a program on music, how important it is to have the music that our loved one wants, right? From their era. It's essential. But what about the music that we like? What about listening to maybe a mantra that we like or beautiful nature sounds? We can do that while we are preparing lunch. And this builds our, ourselves. When looking at photographs, sometimes we may get very nostalgic and it may not be a good thing. Or it may be how fortunate we were to be able to be at the birth of our grandchild or something like that. So that on Tuesday, something may be joyful. On Wednesday, it may be depressing. You and just as with the people we love, on Tuesday, something may work beautifully. So, oh, good, that's great. Wednesday, you try it, it flops. It's not your fault. Right. It's just the way it is that moment. 
So, um, Dale, we have a question that's a good one, I think, um, which is how can a family cope with news of a diagnosis and build a support network? So it's like instead of going down the rabbit hole, so to speak, how do you put what you need in place before things um, don't go so well? It's a very important question, a little bit more challenging during COVID. But I will share with you that one of the most important things is support. And you spoke about isolation. And there are, there are going to be some people who are going to run away. Um, and they are not going to be able to tolerate seeing your child, your spouse, your parent lose their capabilities, lose their independence, lose their personality in ways that they like. Don't work too hard with those people because there's not going to be a lot of energy, okay? So one of the things you do is cultivate people who will surprise you and who will show up in ways that are going to be supportive. Supportive in ways you may not even know. Like somebody may know that, um, you know, on Friday you're really, really busy, so they're going to drop off a meal. And that's okay. I think what's important when we recognize a support network is that we are all connected. And because your loved one has a diagnosis that is very isolating and very scary to many, many people, most people, we feel that we have to do it ourselves and we can't burden anyone else. But yet we shoulder all of this stuff. Many of, many of the things that we're shouldering, we know nothing about. So we have to learn. And we learn from the experts. We learn from people like you and your online programs. We learn from the doctors who we are consulting with and the support team. And, and we don't say, no, I don't want this. What we, when we often say that, we're saying, I don't want this diagnosis. I don't want to go down this path. And that's okay because nobody really does. But there are other people who are along that path with you. Some of them are families. Some of them are professionals. Some of them are just really nice people mm. who understand what it's like to suffer or to have to enter a world of the unknown and the uncharted and the unfamiliar and other people who don't like change. They could be in your church. They could be down the block. They could be in a community center. So instead of closing in, I suggest that people look outward. Now, I'm a big one on support groups. I will share with you that my mother refused to go to a support group for the 14 years that um, my dad was ill. And she just couldn't do it. But she did many other things. One of her best friends called her every morning for 14 years to check in. That's a good friend. <laughs> that is a good friend. That is a good friend who understood what might help my mother, what might help her get her out of bed. She couldn't go to a support group, but she had her friend. My father, to personalize this, was one of the most popular people in our community. There were 700 people at his funeral. Maybe two people came to visit him while he was not well because people couldn't bear looking at him in this, in this way. He looked great, but they couldn't bear it. So my mother cultivated all these other people. It was like planting a new garden. And she would talk about her life. She would talk about my dad. And I encourage people to keep talking about the person that they're caring for and not just focus on what's lost, but really focus on what they had together and what they can still cultivate. And by doing that, you may find, as I said before, someone who comes in with a dog 
and does a little dog, a dog therapy, someone who likes to paint, someone who can draw, someone who will help in those ways, and then you get a little time off. So your network is not just going to be a network of medical people and people who are expert in the field of Alzheimer's, which by the way, is very important because there are ways to talk to people. There are ways to help them shift activities. There are ways to transition that we don't know unless we talk to people who've been there. So Dale, a lot of what you talk about really is kind of addressing the, the later stage where a lot of the frustrations um, occur. And um, But we have another question about that earlier stage. Um, and I think this is a really good one because a lot of people have this problem. How do you deal with the denial of diagnosis? So everything changes and it might be denial because you're embarrassed or denial because you just don't want to admit that you may be entering down this path. So what do you do? It's a very normal response. And the most normal response is that the person who is either living with the person who's going through these changes is in denial or they're accepting, but perhaps their children are in denial or the friends are in denial. So then you have to use extra energy to try and you know let people know that what you're seeing is real. And it's just too much energy. I mean, people don't have that much energy and the energy they have, they need to take care of themselves and this other person. I think what's important is to recognize that whenever we get any kind of news that we don't wanna hear, we generally put up a wall. We don't wanna hear it. We don't want to hear it because it would mean that we would have to be open to something that is really awful for us in our mind's eye. Often we don't know very much about what it is that we're hearing, or we know a lot, and whatever it is, we don't want to know about it. So it takes time. I think what helps, and everyone is different, and everyone is accepting and adapting in different ways. And this is actually part of resilience, Deborah. It's how we adapt, how open we are to learning. What are we going to learn not only about this illness, but about ourselves and about our world? We have to give ourselves time. And I think that we can talk to some people in small bits. You know, I think what's really difficult is to have one appointment with a doctor, have a download, and then try and figure it out. It's I mean, it's, it's horrible. And where do you go? And who do you talk to? And how do you protect yourself? Because people can't take this overwhelming grasp of all of this. So I'm a big one on parceling out what you can take as you can take it. But that's when you need the support group. Because in the meantime, your loved one needs to have safety, needs to have people learn how to talk with him or her in ways that are gentle and kind and caring when you want to tear your hair out or you, as you said, you can't hear that 15 more times. But in the early stages, you know, the tea kettle is left on. In the early stages, the dog is fed three times. In early stages, there's a common, there's, there's the same kind of conversation over and over again with the same phrasing that didn't used to be there. And there's a part of you that all of a sudden is on alert and, the, and there's another part of you that's making excuses saying, no, no, it's tired or no, she's just exhausted or, or, you know, she's bored or whatever. Right. Or she had a shock. 
And we try to give all kinds of reasons why what we fear and may have been may have been validated and confirmed by a doctor is something that we don't want. So we, we have to be cared for by others. And I think that what happens is all of the attention goes on the patient and none of it goes on the caregiver, except what are you gonna do? How are you gonna change? How are you gonna get things? And it's more overwhelming because not only are you dealing with the potential loss and the loss of your dream and the loss of what you think is going to be the future of your life, but now you've got all these people's expectations. And that's also where the isolation and loneliness and the lack of forgiveness comes in because very often people will never be able to do this. How can I do this? I, I, I'm not strong enough for this. I don't have the temperament. I don't have the knowledge. And that's the voice that we keep hearing. So the adaptation is the person adapting and being able to accept that their memory is not what it was or that this is the reason that we're not gonna have you driving or I'd like you to go outside and do you mind if I go with you? And this is also where lying comes in and it's, you know, I, oh, I really wanted to go to the cleaners. Do you mind if I go with you? Instead of I'm afraid that you're gonna get lost on your way to the cleaners, so you know I'm not gonna let you go. What is the kind thing to do? What is the kind thing to say? And as people are adapting, I don't think we have to keep hitting them over the head with, you know you've got this diagnosis of Alzheimer's. I mean, what is the point? And when we feel we need to say that, we say it to somebody else. And then we say, what, because what is that? It's, it's, it's a total sadness, depression, fear. We have to have somebody to say that to. We have to have somebody, but not the person. So Dale, I have to mention this because we're going through this with my own family. And you know, my mom is really starting to slip in terms of her memory and not recognizing family members. And But one thing that occurred to me, which really, really surprised me, she still hasn't lost her sense of humor. So yes. we can all laugh together that she, like she actually is quite self-deprecating in the way, oh, I'm losing, I'm getting so bad, you know, but she makes a joke. Yes. And we found because she's comfortable with humor still, we can all joke together and we all laugh, you know. I'm, I was over there for dinner and she put on her jacket as I was leaving to go with us. I was like, where are you going? She goes, mm -hmm. oh, I live here, you know, and so we all right. laugh. And so, I mean, to me, that surprised me because I've always thought of like, as she progresses, it becoming sadder and sadder and sadder. And I dreaded the day that she didn't recognize me. And, yeah. you know, but because she hasn't, Alzheimer's hasn't taken away her sense of humor yet, it's yes. made it easier for the whole family in a weird way. Indeed. And I think that what you're saying is when you find these moments in these pockets, that's what you feed, all right? You feed what you want to see more of, right? So what you should do, in my opinion, is whatever, whoever her favorite comedians were, if she's able to pay attention to put, either put them, on, put them on a screen, if she's screen tolerant, um, and watch all funny movies, um, 
you know, Anatomy of an Illness, which was written so, so many years ago, is about, uh, you know, Norman Cousins curing himself through laughter. And laughter is one of the greatest endorphin release possibilities that we have. And anything that you can do, music also does this for many, many people, brings them to a place of joy, brings them to a place where their brain actually changes. And for the caregiver to have your brain change, to laugh together. I mean, laughing is such a fabulous release. Even looking at funny pictures or remembering, if she doesn't remember who you are, which apparently she does right now. And you also said something else which I wanna address, which has the dread, the future dread. And I'm gonna come back to that. Because if we can really train ourselves to stay in this moment, and at this moment we're laughing, that gives us, that's the drop in our reservoir bucket, that gives us the power to go on. So the next time you come over, you may come over armed with a joke, or you come, may come over armed with a photograph of a time that is a very funny story that you remember. And everybody has a funny story. Even if she's only present for 50% of the stories, that's 50% more than she would have been before. And it's a whole lot better for all of you. And so when we talk about that dread, look, None of us would be human if we weren't looking to the future. We have to look to the future to plan, but we can't live in the future. We live now at this moment. And just as that happy moment is so joyful and helpful for our heart, for our brain, for every aspect of us, every aspect, even our indigestion, okay? A sad moment or a terrifying moment is also going to bring us to that moment. But it is not, we don't want to hang on to that and say, oh God, now this is where we're going. We adapt. Again, we learn, we adapt, and we are in the present. So what adjustment do we need to make to that for that? You know, if somebody nearly fell down the stairs, oh, time to put a gate, all right? You don't then have to have all the thoughts about Oh, now how are we going to, you know, get the house in order in a different way? What you need to do, try to be one step ahead, but try to milk out as much of these wonderful, wonderful experiences as you can. Some people don't, do, don't engage in joyful experiences with the person they're caring for because the joyful experience isn't as rich mm -hmm. as it once was. So unfortunately, what happens is, and this is very human reaction, we look at what used to be there, which isn't there, instead of what's still there. So I'll share with you that a, a friend I know who's a gardener, um, her father used to be a master gardener. And now he can hold the, the uh, towel and he can dig in the dirt. And all she does is focus on how he's not doing what he used to do. He's so happy. Right. He's talking about his, his hands are in the dirt. There's this kinesthetic memory, mm -hmm. there's, there's aromas, there's all kinds of stories about flowers that used to be planted, of trees, and this enriches what we feel is minimal. We have that ability to do that 
but only if we take care of ourselves. It's right? so true. I We've had that same experience too. My mom used to be an avid gardener and now just to go out into the garden and sweep all day is very satisfying to her. It's yes. that connection. Yes. I, wanna, I wanna get to another topic because we're getting yes. a couple uh, questions on this yes. one. And it's really about strategies for coping with a loved one's aggression, hostility, paranoia. Um, another uh, viewer has asked, said, my mother-in-law is aggressive with her mixed dementia spits in, uh, in family members' faces. How do you deal with a, a, such a difficult situation like that? Yeah, that's really so, it's so challenging for everybody um, because of course your immediate response is this person just spit. And I think there's a two part, there's, there's actually three parts. One is um, understand what's going on as far as if they're on medication, whether or not the medication is still appropriate and talk to the physician and talk to whomever the, the medical people are who are following the family's case to just say this is a this is a new behavior or this is a behavior that's increased. I would also look at the environment. What might there have been something that triggered this reaction? And again, remember that sometimes these reactions um, are not the, the person that may not be intent usually is not intending to spit in someone's faces. That's what happens. Um, the aggression, it's um, trying to, again, be safe and trying to be as gentle as you can be while keeping the person safe and keeping yourself safe. Sometimes if you can direct them to another space, looking at something, the distraction factor can be very helpful. Sometimes if the person allows you to, to touch their body, depends on who it is and what kind of, you know, to just stroke them or to immediately start singing or put on some music, to be able to bring um, to to bring something else into the picture, and it could even be I'm sitting at my desk and I have a rock here, and I I sometimes will just hold it and feel the temperature, and you know if you can just hold that yourself, and then get yourself centered, and then you may have something. I always I always ask families to have soft things around their house. It could be blankets, could be pillows, could be things that are very textural. Here's like, um, you know, like a soft cloth because texture can often, texture on the skin can often bring someone down to a different, to a different mood. The other thing is really music and music can help to change a mood in a moment. The other point is to make sure this person is safe. And when someone is flailing around and flailing around, you may need to come from behind and give them a hug and say, it's okay, mom, we're okay. It's okay, mom, we're okay. I'm here, I've got you, it's okay, we're good. And that tone of voice, and while you're telling yourself, how am I ever gonna get through this? I can't believe what's going on. You say, it's okay, we're okay, all right? Not just you're okay. We're okay, because you have to calm yourself as well. And sometimes it could be that changing the position, if someone is sitting and maybe they wanna lie down or if, or if they're walking, let's sit down. Oh my, oh my, you know what? There's something here. Let's go over here and sit on this chair. Oh, I love this chair. I'm gonna sit next to you and turn the person so that what, whatever may have been the stimulus, the trigger is no longer in view. It could be that it was in their mind and you have no access to it. But what you have access to is the behavior. 
And that's the only thing that you can try and intervene with. But you can't intervene with it if you're scared and if you're screaming. Yeah. And that's not going to work. And another viewer just said uh, that she bought her mom a robotic dog for seniors that makes her happy and distracts her when she gets angry. Yes, it's great. It's great. I love those robotic dogs. And the ones that you can program, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes if you have a real dog or a real cat, you can bring them in as, you know, the last resort. But sometimes the dogs can be at peril and you don't and you don't or they get very frightened. And so you don't want them to be the object of, of being uh, hurt. But you also can, you, you, you read the situation, you know, is it time to bring in the dog? And, you know, it's kind of like sending the clowns. Um, bring in the dog, bring in a soft object, whatever it is. It also could be aroma. I also encourage people to use, um, it's, it really is aromatherapy, and to bring in lavender or to bring whatever, whatever is a scent that your loved one calms to, and lavender is often is often one, um, and just kind of spray the room or spray where they are. Say, oh, I smell something. It could be gardenia, whatever it is. It could be a potent smell, and it can be calming. Vanilla is one that often works. And use, you know, I I, I like to talk, Deborah, about the five S's, right? And sense is one of them. And all of the senses, the touch. But be, be aware, if you're feeling really angry, do not touch. It's kind of like if you're angry at a kid. Do not go near them. So you then use your voice. You start singing. Start singing a prayer. I, have a, I work with a family, and there's a particular prayer that their father loves. And it calms them immediately. And when, when all else fares, fails, they start singing that that hymn. It's a it's a hymn. It's a prayer, and he kind of looks like this, <laughs> and goes to work. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's gentle, try it. There's um there's another question that I think it comes up all the time um, because we had um, a wonderful caregiver write a piece for us, and she talked about the feeling of actually wishing her father um, would pass. And it's a really hard thing to be honest about, but by the number of comments we've gotten on that article, it's one that does occur. It's, it's as we talked about before, it's human, right? When you feel like your loved one is in a place that's, they're not so happy and everyone around them is not so happy. So, how do you how can people when they're caregiving deal with those complicated emotions i mean you know to even articulate that out loud could you know bring gasps of like surprise but yeah not, not from people who have been in that situation yeah and if we're honest it so is that's the point it is a very common response it is a very very common feeling articulated or not at some point along the journey for a caregiver to have. It is normal, actually, and it's a fantasy. And it's one that we say, I'm done, I've done so much. It's a, it's a desire to have their loved one be at peace, be calm, be unagitated, to have their life back, right? To have the caregiver's life back. Even though the same people who say that 
will mourn desperately when, their when the loved one is no longer here. But it particularly happens when, you know, doctors say there's really nothing more that we can do and now we just have to manage it. And, and the person who's had a life with this vibrant, engaged person sees them as someone they often don't recognize, that they wouldn't recognize themselves, that there is such a diminishment, not only in the, in the quality of their life, but in everything familiar, that in the fantasy, we think, they would be better off, they would be at peace. If they saw themselves this way, they wouldn't wanna be there. And, and all of that is very normal and, and very real and natural. When you are in that place for a long time or when you have those thoughts a lot, it really can be, a, it, it is a sign of burnout. It's a sign of just overwhelm. I can't look forward and do this any longer. And we really need to, have someone to talk to, uh, someone who understands. It could be a psychologist, it could be a social worker, it could be um, a minister, someone who, who really understands, it could be a support group. Because this, although it's not articulated often, um, and as you say, people are embarrassed and they feel guilty and then they feel shame. This is, this is a thought that is often felt and and, and articulate it to oneself. And then what happens, as I said, is then the person feels guilty and shamed and it's, it's not a good thing. So to understand that this is also part of a larger group, you know, Kristen Neff, who's a wonderful, wonderful psychologist who, who does a lot of work in the area of self-compassion, talks about being able to be aware of what we need when we behave in ways that we're not proud of, like having a thought like that, or as you said, when driving and then losing it, what do we need? What would you say to a little kid who, you know, who had a temper tantrum? Would you say, oh, stop it, you're stupid, you're this or that? No, you would say, you're really overwhelmed. Yeah. You need a hug. You know, let's just take a moment. This is the voice that we need to be able to use with ourselves. This is the most compassionate thing we can give to ourselves. And then when we do that, we say, you know what? You're not alone. There are so many people who are experiencing this, each of whom feels extremely lonely, right? But we don't at that moment realize that we really are connected. We are so much a part of this group of people who are caregivers and who are strained and who wonder whether or not they'll make it. And then, we have the third component, which actually has to do with what can I do to make myself feel a bit better? I call it bookending. You know, in the olden days when people had books, <laughs> they had bookshelves and, and they had bookends that kept the books together, right? From falling over, from falling apart, from falling off the shelves. So before you were about to, let's say, gives your loved one a shower, which can be a really challenging situation for many people. Maybe you can have a cup of tea, right? And maybe you can inhale that aroma and be in that moment. Or maybe you can look at some pictures that are really are fun and funny. Or maybe you can read a poem. Or maybe you can do a little art project that you've been working on. Or maybe, 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 maybe something that makes you feel alive, makes you feel good, nurtures your soul. Those are your bookends, so you do one before, one after. And then 
you have the event. So you consciously tell yourself what you would need to tell a child who's having a hard day or a hard time, and you give them the hug. You know, you put your hand on your own heart and you feel this love. You recognize you're not alone and other people are experiencing something very similar, not exactly what you're experiencing, because nobody can, but very similar. Someone else has felt that. And then what can I do for myself? And if we try and do this, we recognize how our brains need to change and they will, because we have to get that respite. Yeah. Dale, I really can't thank you enough. And we're getting a lot of comments saying, thank you so much. This was a great conversation and very helpful. Um, and it certainly is nice to um, end and in, in, in a way to look forward to give a, a caregivers better strategies. Um, but most of all, I think, you know, we're human. I mean, you, we have to be forgiving of ourselves and there are strategies that we can take um, defining a new norm, I should say, right? Um, but Dale, thank you for your expertise. If people want um, to know more or is, do you have a website, anything? Absolutely, and I welcome, I welcome you. Um, the web, I have two websites, but the one that you probably wanna to go to is uh, www.drdaleatkins.com and it's D-R-D-A-L-E-A-T-K-I-N-S.com. And my email is dale at drdaleatkins.com. And then the other website is thekindnessadvantagebook.com. Okay, and, well, we can yeah. post both of those in, yeah. um, in the chat, but thank and you. And Deborah, I'd like to thank you for everything you're doing in building this community and, 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 and getting information out there that helps families and in sharing your own personal story, because I do believe that it's very important that we know that we are part of a larger family. Thank you so much, Dale, and all the best for for the end of uh, 2020 and a better 2021 for all of us. Yes. Thanks Thank so much um, for sharing your expertise. Um, if uh, any of you have missed part of this conversation, please go to beingpatient.com. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already done so. That is where we will let you know about upcoming talks. We always value your opinion, your needs. Um, if you want to cover a specific topic, please write to us, uh, info at beingpatient.com. We'll post um, the links to Dale's sites if, and she generously uh, gave us her email address. If any of you wanna follow up with her, um, she's opened the door and, and we're very appreciative. Thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next time. Take care.